Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Serial Audio presents Convergence by Michael Patrick Hicks, performed for you by Travis Baldry. Episode 1 Chapter 1 Murder is easy when you wrap a cause around it, like a flag or a god or money. I was sitting in a car that wasn't mine. It had been given to me for the job, and when I left the motel lot, I would drop it off at a prearranged location where somebody else would pick it up. I wore thin leather gloves to prevent leaving fingerprints and to save time on cleanup. A light rain spotted the windshield. A young black woman in a too-short red skirt walked past, then up the stairs to the second-floor landing. She passed a row of dull green doors with black numbers, then stopped and knocked on one about three-quarters of the way down. An Asian man dressed in boxer shorts and an undershirt answered. They exchanged a few words, but his mouth barely moved when he talked, and he didn't smile. She followed him into the room, closing the door behind her. I gave them a few minutes to get down to business. I pulled a pistol from the center console, checked the magazine, and chambered around. I screwed on the silencer and tested the heft. Like the car, the gun had been supplied by my employers. The hit was fairly standard. Only thing odd was that the job had come to me via two employers, each with their own reasons for wanting the man dead. Alice Shi, whom I worked for often, and Jamie, a guy I occasionally did jobs for in exchange for favors. Both had taken an interest in the Asian man, and each wanted something different. One wanted his life, and the other wanted his memories. Alice had her fingers in a lot of criminal activities, including prostitution, and she had provided the girl in the red skirt as a distraction. However, other factors ran beneath the surface of this small favor. For one thing, the street value of this particular combination of illicit sex and murder would be high. Black market memories never came cheap, especially for snuffs. Add on a taboo tax and you were looking at some serious profit. I pulled a balaclava over my head and face before I got out of the car. I went up the stairs to the motel room. The prostitute had been told to leave it unlocked, and when I turned the handle, the door swung open. Both occupants of the room were naked, and she was kneeling on all fours on the bed while he took her from behind, his back to me. He grabbed her face and roughly twisted her head back toward him, causing her to cry out in pain. Then he pulled her hair until she screamed again. He swore at her in Chinese as he punched her in the back of the neck. He shoved her face down into the mattress, trying to suffocate her while he screwed her. When I shut the door with a click, he turned quickly, pulling free from her, and gasped in surprise. She pushed herself away, wheezing. His eyes went wide at the sight of my gun. His words came at me in a rapid clip. I didn't know what he was saying, but I knew he was pleading for his life. Then his hands shot out, and he grabbed the gun, pushing my arm away as he stepped toward me, trying to force me back. I popped him with a quick palm strike to the chin, rattling his teeth. 
He must have bitten his tongue because blood spurted through his lips. I tugged my arm away and drove my knee into his crotch. When he doubled over, I hammered the butt of the gun onto the crook of his neck. Please, don't, he said over and over. Thin ropes of blood and drool dripped from his bottom lip and he cradled his genitals in both hands. The girl was scrunched up against the wall, bedsheets pulled tight against her with one hand, the other hand busy massaging her bruised throat. Half-moon shapes marked where fingernails had been pressed deeply into her breasts. Her mouth and cheeks were swollen. She was young, maybe 16, not much older than that. Given the hard nature of her working life, she could have been younger. I pulled a small black rectangular box and a coil of wire from my pocket. Turn your head, I told the man. He did. I spotted the data port behind his ear and ordered him to plug in while I fed the mail connector into the box. Please, don't. His mouth quivered. Tears ran freely down his face. I glanced at the girl again. Go in the bathroom. She shook her head. No way. I want to watch. Go in the bathroom, I said again, my tone leaving no room for argument. She sulked off. I could feel her eyes on my back, and I knew she was watching anyway. Wanting the fresh memory, I hit record. I didn't care about whatever else he had in backup. I was getting the good stuff, the fear and adrenaline. His heart and thoughts had to be racing. Synapses fired and fired and fired, creating huge chemical dumps, his pineal gland working overtime. He kept begging. Finally, he shut his eyes as I raised the gun. I pulled the trigger. He knelt for a moment a small bloody hole in his forehead. A spasm shot his eyes open. His bowel muscles relaxed and he evacuated under the carpet. Then he collapsed to the floor. I ignored the smell and rolled him over onto his stomach. I unplugged him and tossed the dreamer and its cord onto the bed. I pressed my fingers deep into the skin on the back of his neck, near the data port, trying to get a feel for where the wires ran, which wasn't easy through leather gloves. Latex gloves would have made this part of the job easier, but I didn't trust the thin rubber not to tear. What are you doing? The girl asked. She was standing in the bathroom doorway with a sheet tied around her body. Go back in there. I dug my fingers into his shoulder blades and down the length of his spine. I felt around his scalp and hit pay dirt with a small protuberance near his hairline. That was why I'd used a twenty-two. No exit wound. The bullet had gone in the front of his skull, shredding his brain, before being lodged somewhere inside there. No damage to the electronics. I looked over my shoulder into the bathroom. She sat on the edge of the bathtub, tears streaming down her face, snot running from her nose and around her open mouth. Bruises around her mouth and cheekbones darkened her mocha complexion from where the Asian man had laid hands on her. Finger marks ringed her throat. Suddenly, she seemed a lot older than sixteen. A cracked mirror over a filthy-looking sink caught my reflection. My late forties bordered on late fifties, and a nose that had been broken a few times too many in recent years without ever being reset graced a face lined more with crags than wrinkles. More gray peppered my short hair than I remembered. I pulled out a knife, grabbed a good handful of his hair, pulled as far as it would stretch, then stabbed the knife in and scalped him. A glint of steel grafted to his skull caught my eye. I unscrewed the cap with the blade of my knife and popped loose the memory chip. A lifetime of the man's memories. I stuck the knife into the chip socket and twisted, pulling it in all sorts of directions until the hole was large and disfigured. 
Then I did the same to the data port behind his ear, damn near tearing it completely out of his head. I fired two more rounds into the back of his skull just to be safe. I wanted to bring any chances of data recovery down to zero. Come here, I called to her. There's a bag in my pocket, take it out and open it. She moved tentatively. I dropped the chip into the anti-static bag and told her to seal it. Her hands shook while her thin fingers pressed the silver material of the bag shut, then she carefully put it back in my pocket. Once she finished, I said, get dressed, get a towel from the bathroom and wipe down anything you touched. She moved quickly and the task didn't take her long. She touched hardly more than the doorknob in the bed. She wiped the bathroom counter. You leave first, I said. You walk casual, but keep your face down. She nodded, then left. We were finished with each other. The interaction was nothing more than a passing blip in one another's lives, hardly worth the mem space. I'd been in the motel room for maybe five minutes. It felt longer, thanks to the adrenaline come down. The dead man's clothes were neatly folded on a small chair between the bed and the windows. I had noticed from outside that the blinds had been drawn and shuttered closed. They let very little light into the room, but I instantly recognized the pine green Type 07 uniform and the patch on the shoulder. A red background with a prominent golden star set inside a circle. Pacific Rim Coalition. Epaulettes decorated with two gold stars marked him a Zhongshang, or a lieutenant general in the PRC army. The rank was a political appointment, if his pleadings for mercy were anything to go by. Somebody had granted him a lot of undeserved favor and attention to be promoted to such a high rank at such a young age. I shoved the dreamer back in my pocket and did a quick assessment. If any of the girl's fingerprints were left, it would be hard to trace them to her. Motels as disreputable as this one enjoyed heavy transient traffic. All kinds of people touching all kinds of things, over and over. It'd be damn near impossible to get a good impression. The Shang's memory core was in my pocket, and with his brain Swiss cheesed and the core and data ports ruined, any chances for recovery were hopeless. I was sure no one would be able to identify me under the balaclava. The girl and I would be able to walk away and disappear into the ether. I peeked out the window. Nobody was standing around in the lot. No new cars. I pulled the balaclava up and made a cap out of it. Less suspicious that way. I wiped the doorknob with a towel, used it to open, and then pulled the door closed behind me and walked back to the car, casually, with my head down, like any other patron who frequented shady motels. Passing through the sickly yellow glow of the pulsing holosign advertising the motel's cheap hourly room rates, I quickly checked over my shoulder. I didn't see anyone peeking out from the doors or windows as I went. The lot and the street beyond were quiet, and I had no reason to suspect anybody was watching me or could tie me to the Shang's murder. I dropped the towel on the floor well behind the driver's seat, then got in front and turned the keys. The car was an antique that still ran on gas. Miraculously, there were people that could still afford the gas and oil needed to drive these old heaps. I drove to a parking garage where I left the car. The gloves and balaclava went into a dumpster a few buildings over. I disassembled the gun, discreetly tossing the pieces into garbage cans and down manhole covers and sewer drains as I went. I checked behind me for tales, committing the faces to memory and cataloging them for reference, then crossed the street and walked in the opposite direction, to a bus stop, where I waited for the 704 to Echo Park. Traffic was slow. The bus was crowded well beyond its capacity, and bodies were pressed tightly against one another. I started to feel claustrophobic. What little was left of L.A.'s mass transit systems after the war was overburdened. The city didn't have enough shuttles in service to accommodate the population, and with much of downtown decimated and many of the major thoroughfares closed, 
travel was slow. Before the war, the Metro Rapid Shuttle had run stop to stop in about twenty minutes. Anymore, with all the detours and random pack rem checks, the commute was likely to take at least forty. A brief stop eased the constriction of the crowd as people unloaded. Mercifully, few got on. We shuffled a bit to make more room, and I briefly caught a glimpse out the front window. Ahead of us was a military convoy of Type 103 tanks protected by reactive armor and jeeps that were painted green, brown, and black over a gray background of urban camouflage. The bus stopped a short time later for a PRC road check. I sighed, aggravated. Soldiers flanked the bus and inspected the wheel wells and underbody. They flitted through the crowd, barking rapid questions at random people. They took the driver away and, through a sliver of window between clusters of bodies, I watched as he was questioned. He gave short answers, shaking or nodding his head in response to the PRC inquiries. A guard came up the steps and looked inside at the congestion of bus riders. He held a gun, but casually. No threats there. He looked under the driver's seat and gave the wheel well a quick once-over. His uniform was similar to the Shang's, but he was of much lower rank, wearing green pants and a buttoned coat, a lighter green button-down shirt, a soft cap, and black leather boots. He looked around briefly, shouted something out the door in Chinese, then walked out after the bus driver pulled himself back up. Then we were off again. I got off at sunset and made the short walk to Tent City. That was what those of us who lived there called the refugee camp run by the PRC to house what were euphemistically known as the war displaced. We'd once had homes and lives in Los Angeles. Then the Pacific Rim Coalition invaded and destroyed everything we knew, forcing us to live in tents that the UN had fought to provide for us. Echo Park was one of a dozen camps scattered across California. I passed through a series of security clouds on my way to the check-in gate. The clouds were a thin fog of biometric analytic nanites designed to sniff out chemical traces and toxins indicating I either carried or had handled explosives. At the gate, the guard asked where I had gone and what I had done. We knew each other and had a certain understanding, thanks to a mutual acquaintance, Alice Scher. He didn't ask me questions about the Dreamer unit or the memory chips in my possession. He swiped my identity card and logged my return to the camp. I saw my record appear on the air display between us, listing my daily movements into and out of the camp, guard notes, and my photograph, which was the same as the one on my ident card. At the top of it all, my name, Jonah Everett, was written in all caps. Why did you go into the city? He asked. I was meeting friends at a restaurant in Century City. Refugees? No, I said. They live in Chinatown. The guard nodded to me, and I nodded back, smartly deferential. Take off your shoes and socks. Go to line five for re-entry. I did as instructed. Line five was long and slow moving. After twenty minutes, I passed through a metal arch and a denser cloud of security sniffers. Shoes and socks in hand, I walked barefoot to my tent. Once there, I shrugged out of my coat and fell onto my cot. The day's work was catching up with me. I got up again, long enough to grab a nearly empty bottle of honey whiskey from my footlocker. It had been payment from the last job I had done for Jamie. Then I fished the Dreamer unit from my coat pocket. I uncoiled the wire and plugged it into the data port behind my ear. I untwisted the bottle cap and took a quick hit. The thick, warm whiskey's heat was familiar and offered a bit of a bite against the taste of aged oak. I remembered the jolt of adrenaline as I had walked into the motel room. My heart rate had spiked, my mouth had gone dry. I could have left, and a little remnant of instinct of that fight-or-flight reflex kicked in.
but I had ignored it, clamped it down. The Shang, though, his emotions had been palatable, intense. I was excited to feel the moment of death from his perspective. I took another slug of whiskey and held it in my mouth for a moment, savoring it. Then I swallowed and let the odd chill and heat soak deep into my chest. I hit play. A grotesque electrical charge jolted through me, sparking neurons in my brain. A white light blasted through my cerebral cortex and optic nerves. Everything went blindingly bright for moments buried atop moments, an eternity of moments. This is how death feels, invigorating. As my heart raced and pulse skyrocketed, my brain fought against the violent foreign memory, against the shock, not knowing if it was alive or dying. A massive chemical dump, a deep, long aching undercut a sudden throbbing that stitched its way from my forehead to the crown of my skull. I could feel my hippocampus burning, like a ram's horn on fire in the center of my skull, feeling the flames, seeing the flames. Everything was amped way the fuck up. A building pressure spread a joyful ache through my groin, and I barely felt or heard the groan that escaped me before the sudden splash of wetness. This was death. This was life. Such beautiful pain, a cracking shot of noise and deafness. The whiteness slowly dissolved, then the walls of my tent snapped back into focus. My chest heaving, unable to catch my breath, I gasped for air. My winded lungs were sore. Felt good. Felt so good. Do it again. Hit play. The blast of white, my head throbbed under the searing heat and pain of shattered bone. My chest caught fire, heart racing so hard it felt ready to tear itself apart at the seams. My lungs were burning, each breath was agony. Beautiful pain. I screamed silently, my shouts lost to the buckling inside my skull. Throbbing and cracking, my bones shattered under the weight of memory. This was death, cold eyes watching me, a stranger's eyes, my eyes. Please, I said, please don't. Then the pitch tunnel staring coldly as the gun is raised before me. A flash of light, pain, shock, brutal, short, infinite. I sat very still for a long time trying to collect myself. I could finally breathe again, but I struggled to get my thoughts straight. I debated taking another hit and decided not to. My arm was heavy as I reached behind my ear and unplugged the dreamer. I was cold with flop sweat chills. I couldn't shake the image of the hooker's fat, bruised lips, the trail of tears that had run down her face, or the impressions of fingers and nails on her neck and breasts. I raised the bottle to my lips and finished it. I had to meet with Alice Shih the next day. The sun had set already. I was spent and hungry, but going to the mess hall or to Jamie's for dinner meant moving, and moving was too much work. I had noodles, but no fresh water. Both were too much work. I slipped the dreamer under my cot, then pushed my arms under the pillow as I rolled onto my side. I slept, and later, I woke up haunted. Chapter Two 
I was craving a hot dog, which was a rarity in these times. Used to be I could find them almost anywhere in Los Angeles, but not anymore. The PRC had upset the balance, upended everything. Lunch was a bowl of yakisoba across from the wishing well in Chinatown. Having a Chinatown seemed redundant nowadays. Funny thing was, this part of town used to be known as New Chinatown. Old Chinatown, between Alameda and Macy, had been torn down back in the late 1800s to make way for Union Station. After the PRC arrived, almost everything along the Pacific became Chinatown. American towns didn't exist anymore, not really, and not for a long way from the coast. Small pockets in the Midwest and along the Bible Belt, south of the D.C. ruins along the East Coast, clung to a dying heritage. Much of what was once the U.S. had been co-opted between Canada and rival territories that had fought to carve out independent swatches of nation-states. The Northern Alliance ran from Maine down through the New York mainland and into Ohio and the southern regions of Michigan and Wisconsin. Their reach was extending farther west with the aid and support of European and Canadian allies, but progress was slow and some states had found they enjoyed their independence. Farther down the map, a group of Texan militias had carved out the Southwest Conclave, starting with Dallas and Fort Worth, and then worked their way up through the lower reaches of Oklahoma, creating a violent stretch of land that extended as far west as Phoenix and south of Chihuahua. The cartels in Juarez, along with the Mexican army they largely controlled, hadn't reacted well to the Conclave's incursions and maintained a nearly constant state of war. Some states, such as Washington and Oregon, as well as the upper reaches of Idaho and Montana, became, or were in the process of becoming, Canadian provinces. The map had changed rapidly and left a lot of people without a nation. I swirled the fried wheat noodles and chopped cabbage around a good-sized chunk of pork, then dipped it in a small bowl of mayonnaise. Between bites, I drew a sketch on a small piece of e-paper. Before the war, I had been a small-time artist who taught art history at a local community college. I had carried paper and a digipencil at all times to draft thumbnail images, jot down notes, or quickly compose scenes or ideas. The city, its people, its architecture, I drew all of it. Decades worth of practice had constantly refined and honed my skills and techniques. I rarely drew any more, and even though I hardly used the tools, I occasionally found myself carrying them with me, just in case. I embraced this minor return to my old life, the small feeling of normalcy. A small girl leaning over a waist-high red brick wall threw pennies into the wishing well. The well was a decrepit mess of green paint chipping away to an ugly brown. Golden Buddha statues flanking the monstrosity were the only parts of the facade that were truly well-maintained. I filled in the details of my sketch of her, getting the pose right. Her coins clinked off the metal cups. In front of the cups were white cards with blue lettering, identifying each. Money, wealth, love, surety. She was wishing for one of everything. She couldn't have been more than twelve, with long, shiny black hair that reached down between her shoulder blades. More coins went toward love, and I doubted her wishes would ever come true. If she kept spending coins on love, she would never accumulate wealth. I thought of my daughter, Mesa, then about wealth, love, and money, and how tied up each are in one another. I was losing my appetite. I ate a few thin slices of ginger to cleanse my palate, then checked the time. I spent a few minutes roughly filling in the details of the well and the girl. I had a rough outline of the composition, mostly simple markings of the landscape and a skeleton of ovals and circles that would need to be refined and filled in to resemble the girl. 
Later, if I felt the need to continue, I could review the memories and draw it all in greater detail, with more focus, and give the image depth and clarity, and really bring it all to life on the page. I was lying to myself. The paper would be tossed aside and the sketch abandoned. I folded the e-paper and pocketed it, along with a digipencil. I had already forgotten the scene as I tossed the paper plate and the cheap plastic utensils into a public garbage can. A couple of pack rim soldiers came out of the plum tree. They said something to the girl that made her face redden, and she ran off, her head down and shoulders slumped. They gave me a hard look. As I walked, I checked out the reflections in the glass storefronts and saw the men were following me. I kept my pace moderate, not leisurely or lazy, but not fast either. I turned down Daihokai. When I was a kid, too long ago, it had been College Street, with a few Chinese symbols below the English name. The English names were gone, stripped off all of the street signs. Maybe up in Seattle or Portland, maybe farther up the coast or deeper inland, street signs were printed in English, but not around here, not anymore. Behind me, the PRC turned, following me. Both were thin but well-toned. One had dyed his hair a bright, unnatural yellow, but didn't care to hide the dark roots. The other was shaved bald. Their thumbs were hooked into their belts. Each had an assault rifle slung over his shoulder, a Type 56, similar to the AK-47s the Russians were fond of. I wasn't worried, just wary. I slowed my pace a little, waiting for a reaction. Either they would slow, which meant they were interested in me, or they would walk on by. They slowed. I looked in the windows as I passed the storefront, pretending something caught my interest. They walked by, slowly, staring at me in the reflection. Their gazes hovered over me as they passed. I noticed a distinct black freckling around their eyes, tiny dots placed at regular intervals encircling their orbits. I pegged them for battlefield enhancements, micro-cybernetic upgrades to provide feedback on battle conditions and enemy locations. They were probably analyzing my heart rate, pulse, and blood pressure, looking for any indication that I was a threat and not just some pathetic white guy in Chinatown. The blonde said something that caused his partner to snicker. If they had picked up anything in my vitals, they apparently chalked it up to nerves and moved on. I stayed at the storefront, looking at an assortment of jade jewelry and wood-carved statues finished with a high-gloss red lacquer of elephants, dragons, and Buddhas. I lingered and window-shopped until the PRC soldiers were farther down the block. Whites sometimes had problems after the war and occupation, especially if we were tagged as refugees. Blacks and Hispanics had it even worse and were often subjected to random searches, which typically led to beatdowns if they were considered to be belligerent or disrespectful. Sometimes they were shot in the head outright. Los Angeles was a dangerous little corner of the DMZ for everyone, regardless of color. Most people didn't need a reason to kill, but for a lot of the old Americans, killing the Chinese was par for the course. Immense hostility was boiling beneath the surface, seeking an outlet. A lot of people were able to let it go after a time. Some, though, some never could and didn't want to. They found things to occupy their time, but thoughts of revenge were always curled up somewhere in their minds. Red paper lanterns hung over the street, stretched between the buildings. A gentle breeze sent them bobbing and carried food smells from the many vendors and restaurants. The air was thick with the smells of frying oil, rice, meat, and vegetables, along with the crackling noises of fat and water hitting hot oil. Steam rose from the open-air kitchens while elderly men and women busied themselves in the cramped confines between hot ovens and stovetops. 
The thin wooden countertops were crowded with a shifting influx of the hungry and their lunch orders. People sat at small tables, alone or clustered in parties of two or three. Others ate while walking, leisurely scooping rice with their chopsticks or capturing chunks of bite-sized meat or fish. The square was crowded, but I stood out. Maybe that's what had captured the attention of the PRC. I was an old white guy, about a head taller than everyone else there, wandering after lunch with no real purpose. As far as they were concerned, I should have eaten and left, or better still, never stepped foot in this part of town to begin with. Instead, I moved with no real direction, my head held high while those around me kept their eyes downcast as they moved quickly along the sidewalks. An old man watched me. His face was coiled with wrinkles, the flesh paper thin. A cigarette dangled from his lips and his hands were busy prepping stir-fry at a chop station beside a steaming stove. The knuckles of his calloused fingers were large and gnarly, twisted from arthritis. Dark bags hung beneath his eyes. His hair stood out from his liver-spotted skull in puffy white tufts. He watched me, his butcher's knife quickly dicing onions, carrots, and garlic. Chop, chop, chop. Staring at me all the while, I nodded to him. He nodded back, then motioned me around the corner to the alley beside his food hut. I followed a shallow stream of water gurgling along the gutters in a fast current that spilled into a storm drain. A violent storm the night before had dumped rain and lots of lightning. In this alley, in this gutter, a lot of blood had probably mixed with the rainwater, turning this tiny river red. Fish blood, chicken blood, and people blood too, more than likely. About halfway between Dai Hok Gai and Le Men, a black sedan was parked outside a Chinese restaurant. A pair of large cement lions guarded the restaurant's entryway. The statue feature was typical of this part of town. The lions always came in pairs, male and female. The male had one front paw resting atop a globe that represented the earth, while the female restrained a small cub. I had read that they were representations of yin and yang, a concept that reflects on the interdependency of polar opposites. Considering the damage Alice and I could do to one another if either of us were compromised, I figured the philosophy was about right. The lions also were a symbol of protection. I hoped that was right, too. The driver's door opened and a wiry man in a tuxedo stepped out. Hai opened the rear door and waved me inside. Ni hao, Alice Shi said. I returned the greeting with a perfunctory nod. Her bodyguard closed the door for me and climbed back in behind the wheel, where he was separated from us by a thick pane of soundproof glass. There were no problems, she asked. I fidgeted a bit, straightening my coat, trying to get comfortable. Nothing unusual. I slowly reached inside my pocket and removed the anti-static bag and the small crystalline data chip inside it. She smiled as she took it. An entire life in the palm of my hand. The cheap advertising slogan had become an even more tired joke. Nobody said that kind of shit anymore without irony, especially not Alice Sh, considering her line of work. Judging by her smile and the glint in her eye, it may have even been intentional. Alice was a higher up in the Bing Kong Tong, the Chinese mafia. She was slender and beautiful. When she turned her head, still smiling, to glance out the window, her long neck imparted a certain grace. She favored sleeveless blouses to show off the toned arms she worked to maintain and knee-length skirts or capris that displayed equally nice calves. Her beauty caused a lot of people to underestimate her. People like the Shang. And as the Shang had learned, those who underestimated her usually wound up dead. If they survived, it wasn't without grievous injuries. Of that, there was no usually.
Her long black hair was tied off close to her scalp and draped around the front of her chest. It helped to hide the breast she'd lost to cancer in her teens. She had never told me, but I had heard things. I had caught a glimpse of scar tissue once through the armhole of a sleeveless blouse. The glimpse had been quick and casual, but she knew I'd seen, and that was enough. I'd heard she was also missing a toe because of a simple mistake she'd made at an even younger age. To prove she had learned her lesson later in life, the man who had taken the toe had lost his head. It's hard to believe, she said, a person's entire existence on something so small. The data chip was about the size of my thumbnail. I nodded agreeably, not sure what to say, itching to get out of the car. She seemed to be in a rare philosophical mood, and I didn't have the patience for it. You're not even going to ask what is so important, are you? Which memory he had that I would kill to possess? She smirked and stared me in the eyes, daring me to ask. I shook my head. I'd done jobs for her in the past and never asked about those either. I figured those kinds of questions were above my pay grade, and I didn't really want to know why some people needed others killed or why they wanted it so badly they would farm it out to others. We'd done this dance before. Nope, I said, wishing I had a cigarette. I'd gleaned enough during my earlier playbacks to get the gist. The Shang's offenses were many. He had a penchant for hookers and enjoyed snorting posh. Mostly, he was a power whore who believed that being of rank in the PRC put him above the Bing Kong Tong. She thought otherwise, but had briefly allowed the man his delusions. Acting against him directly would have drawn too much attention to her organization, and although they had many resources, the Tong could not sustain open warfare against the PRC. If they could find an intermediary, though, using a third party to solve their problem could draw official attention away from the Tong. Unofficially, those PRC soldiers who enjoyed the Tong's more nefarious offerings would also be made aware of the costs associated with betraying them. The small crackdown that was sure to follow the Shang's murder would be nothing that would break the Tong, but it would at least allow the PRC to save a little face. In the end, everyone broke even. The data chip disappeared into her pocket. She folded her hands in her lap. And the girl, she asked, quickly changing tracks. The hooker and her bruised face. I could see her clearly when I closed my eyes. The Shang had preferred them dark, but he'd also liked them afraid and beaten. According to Jamie, the girl was one of the Shang's favorites, which made her somebody he could trust, as much as a Shang in Los Angeles could trust anyone these days. He beat her some, I said, but she'll heal. Will she be a problem? I pretended to give it some thought and scratched at the stubble around my chin. I was really thinking about the DMT rush I would get back at home in a few hours, reliving the Shang's death, and a few other mems in my greatest hits collection. Being in Chinatown, watching the PRC sniggering at me, made me realize I'd been straight for too long. I wasn't sure how much to tell Alice. The girl had been afraid of the general, and she had agreed to the job on the condition that she get passage out of the state and into Northern Alliance territory. We used a young Korean guy to help coyote some of our people into the northern reaches of Nevada. The massive influx of refugees meant they weren't exactly welcome in the old heartland, but she stood a good chance of a new life in Minneapolis or Michigan if she survived the route through the Sun Belt and into the Corn Belt. That latter leg of the journey would be easier than the former, given the tentative alliances. The Sun Belt states shared easy borders with a conclave, and those Corn Belt regions were allied with the Alliance or Canada or, if they were wise and business savvy, both. No, she won't be a problem, I said. She gave me a hard look. We're working on getting her disappeared. 
She smiled. She liked words like disappeared. I liked her smile, so I said stupid things like getting her disappeared. She had a nice smile and nice lips. Not too thin, but not too full. They gave her mouth a proportionate appearance. Her dark eyes were nicely slanted. Some guys were into that. I usually wasn't, but I would have made an exception for her. I trust you have already made your copies of his memories, she asked, switching tracks again. I have. Then you have payment enough. She operated on the information is power principle. The memories on that mem chip would mean a lot to a great many people. I knew a couple buyers who would be very interested. I nodded, and she smiled again. She gave a small nod, and the door opened beside me. Hi helped me out, gently putting his hand under my arm, then closed the door behind me with a soft click. He stood beside the car until I was far enough away to be safely deemed unthreatening. A slow drizzle started as I walked down toward Les Men. Flashes of light in the distance were followed by thunderous explosions. I sat at the bench near a bus stop and waited, watching thick columns of black smoke curl into the air over the freeway. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.